for the rest of us, you're stuck listening to me. Uh, we have been going through our Colossians series, we, um, our New Life series, looking at what does it mean that we have new life. Um, I think I know that uh, we tend to use a lot of Christian terms, a lot of Christian ease, and we can say like, oh, you're a new creation. It's like, great, I still feel just as messed up and broken as I was before I met Jesus. Matter of fact, sometimes I feel more broken and messed up than before I met Jesus. And so we have to wrestle with, what does this look like? What does new life look like with Jesus? Um, does it change the way we act? Does it change the way that we spend time? Does it change the way that we parent? Does it change the way that we interact with people who don't know Jesus? Everything changes because the center of our universe has shifted from us to Jesus. And unless you think you looked a lot like Jesus before you came to know him, then your world probably should look a whole lot different. And so as we've walked through Colossians, we've gone through, I think Paul covers so many different concepts in Colossians. Uh, a lot of what uh, Paul talks about early in the book of Colossians is who we are in Christ. He's really um, nailing down the identity uh, part and the identity statements. If uh, some of you are in my uh, Sunday, Sunday morning class called More, we're going through the book More, uh, and I love that the first thing he deals with in his book is not what we should do, but who we are, those identity statements and, and the imperative that we operate from a place of identity, not a place of uh, obligation and a place of like, well, let me just figure out where, you know, what what holes I can fill in the church, what slots need of, you know, are available, and let me just do that. But um, if we really, truly understand who we are in Christ, it changes a lot about the way that we live. And so that's what he spends a lot of time in the, in the early chapters in Colossians talking about. Uh, and now where we are this morning, Paul's beginning, uh, he's talking a lot about family dynamics. And um, if you've uh, had a kid for more than 10 minutes, you realize this is a lot of work this is not easy. I, you know, it doesn't come as naturally as I thought it would. And uh, my wife and I had a lot of expectations of the type of parents we would be and, and you know, all the things that we would do and wouldn't do. You know, I, I remember one of the things was, um, like, I'll, I'll never bribe my children. Like, that's never going to happen. And I will give him anything sometimes if he would just listen and leave me alone for five minutes. Uh, and so I, I, have, I have negotiated, and, and I may have thrown a bribe or two out there. Uh, so we realize, uh, also if you've been married for more than 10 minutes, you realize that's a lot of work too. Uh, it, just because you were in love doesn't mean that it's, everything's going to be smooth sailing and everything's just going to be hunky-dory for the rest of your life. Like That also requires a lot of work uh, and a lot of effort on our part. Uh, so what he covers first in the uh, family dynamic is the marriage relationship. Uh, and what has always surprised me uh, is how many married couples over time have set the goal of their marriage as good. Uh, one of the statements uh, I heard a long time ago that I really, uh, is stuck in my mind really well is, uh, it's very easy to think that the enemy of God's best for us, like the most dangerous thing for God's best is the worst and like Satan and all of these terrible things. And, he, and whoever this was that said this said, no, the, the enemy of God's, the biggest enemy of God's best in our life is good. Because if the enemy can't win, if he can't get us to choose him, then if he can just get us to settle for good, then he's still won to a degree. 
If we, if we stop at good and we don't move on to God's best, that's the biggest danger to us because uh, of how we can settle, of the likelihood that we would be tempted to settle. I doubt many couples were thinking on their wedding day, correct me if I'm wrong, um, well, don't raise your hand because um, you're going to get in trouble, but there probably aren't many couples that on their wedding day thought, you know what, I can see myself tolerating you for the rest of my life. Like, I can, I can definitely, my, my hope is that one day I get to the place where I look at you and think, I can tolerate you. Uh, I hope that's not what you were feeling on your wedding day, but there are some couples that that's the best they can say. They look at their spouse and they say, I tolerate them. I, I, I try not to get too angry, but I, and, I, and I can tolerate that person. Many couples actually rate their marriage based on what isn't happening. Try this sometime. Ask a couple, like, how's your marriage? And listen to what they say. Well, we don't fight that much. Well, there's no infidelity. You know, no, no, you know none of us have, uh, have either cheated. We don't talk about divorce anymore. It's rating your marriage on the, the lack of bad things. Uh, I don't know about you, but to me, that's not, uh, that doesn't you know, scream success when someone just shares the, the negative things that haven't happened or at least haven't happened for a while. I find it, uh, found it surprising when I started to learn how many couples have, uh, essentially, they've completely given up on a great marriage and are willing to just settle for good. Surviving another year without too much turmoil that begins to be the goal. As long as we don't fight too much, as long as the, the, the divorce word doesn't come up, then we've had a good year. And that begins to become the goal. On the other hand, you have other couples who, because of their beliefs in marriage, won't consider divorce, but are really unhappy in their marriage. It's one of the things I cover in, in pre-marriage counseling, which uh, I'm doing a handful of those sessions because everybody wants to get married this year, apparently. Uh, one of the things, it seems like it's good and holy and righteous that like the, the, the program I use, uh, it categorizes people into different mindsets of marriage. And, uh, and the, the one is resolute. And it's, it's that mindset that says we're marrying for life. There's not even the option for divorce. Nothing that you do could ever make me think that that would be an option. Uh, and it seems like that's the best one. But I try to tell them, like, you have to also understand if you see something as indestructible, you're probably not going to care for it as delicately as something that you know is fragile. And so sometimes those who think, well, divorce is never an option, they think, well, I don't really have to pursue my spouse. I really don't have to love them well. I don't have to continue to date them as we are married and, and continue to show them that uh, I'm desperately in love with them and, 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 and all of these things. They just think, well, they're, they're not going anywhere. So why bother? Why put all that extra effort in? And so I, I make sure that they understand that just because it, you can't break it doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of it. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't still care, take, uh, take it with a significant amount of care. And, and for marriages, obviously, I think that's really important. Whether your values tell you that divorce isn't an option or that it is or whatever that is, uh, God has created marriage to be this vibrant, life-giving relationship. It's supposed to be this beautiful, awesome thing. But so many couples have decided that a vibrant, life-giving marriage just isn't an option anymore. That's not, on the, that's not on the table. Those aren't in the cards for me. You just don't understand my situation. That's just not something that God wants for me. There's a good chance that many marriages are in this, are like this, because they've fallen into what 
uh, I'll probably butcher his name, but Emerson, Dr. Emerson Egerix calls the crazy cycle. Uh, it's one of the things that my wife and I came across a number of years ago. Uh, this, if you've ever done the study Love and Respect, it's really good. Uh, but uh, if you don't know, everybody who steps foot in our church uh, or even knows about our church, you, you, have ac- you have access to what's called Right Now Media, and there's tons of awesome stuff on there. Uh, and one of the things on there is this, uh, s- this study called The Crazy Cycle. And so, couples, if you're not regularly doing something like uh, a Bible study or a marriage study, uh, jump on Right Now Media and you can do one. There's hundreds of them. You won't run out of them. Um, and so, this is one I would, I would throw out there and say, this is good stuff. Like, I've gone through the material. It's actually really good stuff. Um, but I'm going to let you actually watch the trailer and decide for yourself if this resonates at all with you and maybe your situation or someone you know. So shameless promotion of that uh, study, the crazy cycle. A couple sessions, uh, really good. If you want to dig deeper, you can always, uh, they don't have it on Right Now Media anymore, but you can do their larger study, which is Love and Respect, which covers a lot of areas. Um, But does that sound familiar at all? Whether it's your marriage, a marriage you know, maybe your parents, where you kind of heard them maybe even communicate that, well, if they're not going to respect me, then I'm I'm not going to love them. Or if he's not going to love me, then I'm not going to show him any respect. He doesn't deserve my respect. I think it's actually really, really common uh, for that to happen. And if, if you've never been tempted in that in your own marriage, you are better than me because I know I certainly have. Uh, when I feel disrespected, my first response is like, how can I make her feel unloved so that she understands that she was disrespectful? And I'm personally tempted to do that. It's interesting as husbands, how when we feel disrespected, we tend to react in an unloving manner. And wives, when you feel unloved, you tend to react in a disrespectful manner. It's almost as if God knew the hearts of men and women when he wrote Colossians through Paul. Almost like he actually understood us and had something for us there Uh, If you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 18. Uh, It'll be up on the screen, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation if you just want to follow along with us. 
But in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. We, as new creations, should treat each other differently than the world does. If that's news to you, there you go. We should be different. Our marriages should be different. They should look drastically different than those of people who don't know Jesus. But according to divorce rates and other statistics, there is no difference between the marriages of those who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us we really don't understand what it means to live out this new life because it should affect everything, including our marriages. And from what the statistics say, it's not. As a whole, obviously, there are certainly people who it does. But we, as the church, if we operated from the new life, if we desperately leaned into the Holy Spirit and we lived out of His toolbox and not ours, not the ones our parents taught us, not the ones the world teaches us, then everything would be different, including and especially our marriages. We, those who are new creations in Christ, we should be the forerunners on healthy, vibrant marriages. We should be teaching others. This is what it looks like. I'm not really doing anything special. This is just, this is just how I operate. And as we explain to them how, just how we operate, it should confound them. Because we have access to love the world does not. We have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. The world does not. We should be experts of humility, grace, and mercy as we daily become more like Christ. And I know all you husbands out there, you're great at being humble, right? I'm sorry is a regular part of your vocabulary. You are right. That's something you communicate every day, right, to your, to your wife? Uh, probably not nearly as much as we should. Uh, there's nothing like being in an argument and realizing you're wrong and then having to walk that back, right? That's like the most fun conversation you've ever had. Uh, but we should be experts at that. We have been offered grace and mercy far beyond what we could ever hand out to anybody else, no matter how terrible that we think they are. We were worse to Jesus. And so we should, out of a great abundance of, hum- of grace and mercy, and with a humble posture, be able to. If Jesus can wash the feet of Judas, you can say, I'm sorry, to your spouse. Trust me, it can happen. You won't die. But sadly, it's more of a rarity than a standard that the marriages of the world are begging us and asking us to give them the secrets of our vibrant, healthy, life-giving marriages. Even though we, we have all these life-giving words from God through Paul, we still find ourselves caught up in the crazy cycle. We still find ourselves responding out of a lack of love or a lack of respect. When, when I officiate weddings, I make it very, very clear uh, to the bride and groom that what they are entering into is not a contract. Too often, marriage is is viewed as a contract. It's viewed as this, if you do this, then I will do this. That's a contract. It's 
you're contractually obligated. And in a contract, if someone doesn't uphold their end of the contract, what happens? You are no longer responsible for your side of the contract. If they don't pay the agreed amount, you're not responsible to give them the services that they did not pay for. Now, that's a contract. If they don't do their part, you don't have to do your part. And so many couples view marriage that way. They view it as a contract. And so when they feel like their spouse isn't upholding their end of the contract, they feel like, well, I'm not responsible for mine. I don't have to do what I said I was going to do. I don't have to follow my vows. I don't have to love you. I don't have to respect you because you aren't doing your side. So I make it very clear through the whole pre-marriage counseling and the wedding day especially that what they're entering into is a covenant. And they're not even entering into a covenant with, the other, with their, their spouse. They're entering into a covenant with God about their spouse. It regards the spouse, but it's not to their spouse. So when their spouse fails miserably, that covenant still stands because it's to God who does not change and does not fail us. And so when I committed to certain things and my wedding day, I was committing them to God about my wife, Jackie. And so when she fails to uphold the things that she might have said or she fails to be the wife that I expect her to be, that doesn't change my responsibility. That doesn't change my part of the covenant. What we agree to in marriage is despite how our spouse acts and despite who they are or may become. We will love, cherish, and honor them for the rest of our lives because it's not a contract and it's not conditional. I don't know about you, but when I stood up there on that day when I got married, the pastor did not say, do you promise to love, respect, cherish, and honor your wife as long as she does the same back to you? That wasn't the language or the verbiage that was used at my wedding. It was, do you agree to do this? Yes, I do. It was not conditional. It was just, this is what I'm making a covenant to do for the rest of my life till death do us part. What I agreed to in marriage is to love Jackie whether she respects me or not. What Jackie agreed to in marriage is to respect me whether I showed love or not. That's actually a very vulnerable place to be on a wedding day to say, I'm agreeing to this whether you uphold your end or not that I'm going to do this no matter what. Basically saying there's nothing you can do that will stop me from loving you for the rest of my life. That's a vulnerable place to be at a wedding and to make a lifelong commitment. Paul actually goes a little more into detail in his letter to the Ephesian church. If you were with us at the beginning of this like four months ago, it feels like when we first started Colossians, uh, One of the things we talked about is that Paul wrote a few letters when he was in prison, uh, Colossians being one of them, uh, this letter to the Colossian church, but he also wrote probably at the same time or at a very similar uh, time, very close together, a letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, And he actually goes a little bit more into into detail. And one of the things, reasons I want to bring this up is because Paul's letter to the Colossian church, it's a little more condensed and it's sometimes abused by husbands to get subservience from their wives. But look how Paul starts this conversation with the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hold on a second here. So the idea of wives submitting to their husbands, that doesn't mean that we get dictatorial authority over our spouse? Not if you listen to this verse. 
The whole point of the entire conversation is that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I love the way that this is worded, the way that he goes about it, because first he makes it very clear, this is about mutual submission. Because by no means, husbands, are you the final authority in anything. God is the final authority. But we are to mutually submit to one another. And look how Paul continues this. He says, so he goes, the idea is mutual submission. And then for wives, this is what it looks like. For husbands, this is what it looks like. Okay? So he moves on from this verse, verse 22. For wives, this means submit to your husband as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. So that's the wives part. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. So you see, this entire conversation is about mutual submission. For wives, it looks one way. For husbands, it looks another way. But the goal we need to remember is mutual submission. For wives, it means submitting to the husband through respect. For husbands, it means loving our wives as Christ loved the church. That's a really important statement I don't want us to miss. As Christ loved the church. Paul's words here do not impart some level of authority over our wives, which did not previously exist. You cannot use this verse to say, Well, woman, you must listen to me and obey me because the Bible says so. That's not what this is doing. This is not imparting to you authority. What Paul's words do impart here is the necessity to act like Christ did with the church, washing the feet of people who couldn't fully love him back because they were so caught up in their own glory patiently teaching and instructing, even when he was being questioned at every turn about every decision, loving even though he was doubted, despite pulling off miraculous things time after time, being betrayed and having all of those who claimed to love him run and turn their backs on him. That, husbands, is how we're encouraged to love our wives. If you came to the conclusion after reading this that the Bible gives you the authority to boss your wife around and be a condescending jerk, we have a very different translations of this passage of Scripture. Because what I see here is like, man, women get off easy. They just have to respect us, even though we're super difficult to respect sometimes and we can be real knuckleheads. We have to submit like Christ did to the church. I mean, we can't even fathom what it means That God, who created everything, who is eternally existent, who cannot be defined in terms that we even have words for, that he became a human being. He humbled himself that much. 
And then he walked among us. And he didn't even do it like as a king. For him to do it as, as the richest person with all the splendor and glory that this world has to offer would still have been completely humbling for him. It, that, that doesn't even tick the scale on the humble meter, regardless of how he walked through this earth. But he did it humbly. Didn't own a whole lot. Didn't have a house to call home. Walked around and was hungry all the time with a bunch of knucklehead disciples who questioned him at every turn and, and, and doubted him all the time. Didn't understand what he was saying. Constantly were trying to jockey for, for gl- their own glory. Man, husbands, what do we have to complain about? I, mean, I found a woman that puts up with me. I should be celebrating. I know I don't love her like Christ loved the church and gave his life up for the church. He didn't just die, though. He lived for the church. He lived as an example. He even entered into temptation. Forty days in a wilderness, he went without food and water to show us what it looks like to operate from a place of temptation and to succeed. These are the ways that Jesus lived and that we can take and say, okay, that's how, that's the kind of husband I want to be. Wives, as difficult as it may be to deal with us most of the time, notice that Paul doesn't say submit in respect as long as your husband is doing his part or as long as you deem him worthy of your respect and submission. As those of us who have new life, This is how a wife treats her husband, regardless of who she's married to. This is how a husband treats his wife, regardless of who he's married to. Does that mean that you subject yourselves to abuse and things like that? No, it's not at all what this is saying. You can love and respect somebody while keeping distance and separating and being away from a situation that's dangerous. Don't hear what I'm not saying here. Like, well, you're in a dangerous situation. You've got to go back. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. There is a love and a respect, though, that should flow from us as people who have experienced new life. This is how a wife treats her husband. This is how a husband treats his wife because it has less to do with the character of your spouse and more to do with the character of Christ living in you. I shared a couple weeks ago how much of a cop-out I think it is when we say well I'm a peaceful person except for that one person at work they make me that way that's not how it works they might make it easier (laughs) to fly off the handle but you were an angry person before they ever showed up they just brought it out they helped you express that they gave you ample opportunity our spouse does not make us a disrespectful person our spouse does not make us an unloving person If we have Christ in us, you have the capacity to love and to respect far beyond what you think you're capable of because it comes from him. It's about his character, not my spouse's. Now, I find it very easy to love my wife because she's very lovable and she's amazing. But if she wasn't, that doesn't change my responsibility to love. Christ did not withhold love and respect just because it wasn't being reciprocated by us. The Bible says that he loved us while we were still his enemies. He did so without condition. That's one of the things uh, I've heard. You've probably heard it many, many times. Like People share it a lot on communion Sundays. Well, if you were the only one 
Jesus would have died for you. I heard someone one time talking about it, and they said, actually, that's completely inaccurate. Not maybe completely inaccurate, but it is inaccurate. The truth of it is, if nobody received him as Savior, he still would have died on the cross because it wasn't conditional. It had nothing to do with our response. He felt compelled to do it, not because of what, how we would respond, but because of his love. It compelled him to the cross. It had nothing to do with our response. And I think that is so moving because it, it can motivate me often as a husband when I feel like I don't really want to do something that's really loving and I don't feel like my wife deserves it even though she does. I need to be reminded often, Jesus did not do things for me conditionally. Paul then moves on to children in verse 20. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Now, this seems pretty self-explanatory, uh, but it can get real tricky if you have parents who don't follow Jesus. I had parents who were Jehovah Witnesses. I had to disobey them because I wanted to go to church and because I didn't want to go to the Kingdom Hall and I didn't want to worship uh, in their religion, so I had to step out from that, and I had to really parse between this, like what does it mean to obey my parents while still honoring God? Um, I certainly did not succeed in that. I I'm failed miserably, I'm sure, so I won't tell you all my stories, but uh, it does get tricky. This isn't just a black and white statement of like, obey your parents, because sometimes parents, uh, I know maybe not you, but we get it wrong sometimes. <laughs> we don't always get it right. We can be selfish, and I've seen parents try to stop their kids from marrying someone that was a good person. I've seen parents try to stop their kids from going overseas and being an inter international worker with a people group because they felt God was calling them to and because the parents didn't like it. They, were, they didn't feel comfortable with it. So it can get real tricky. Not just if your parents don't know Jesus, but if they aren't following Jesus themselves or they're, they're trying to stop you from doing something that you feel God is leading you toward. But God should always take the ultimate authority role in our lives. So as long as what our parents are telling us to do or their leadership doesn't contradict God's leadership or what God is telling us to do, the Bible's telling us we should obey. We must obey as children. Not just while we're under their house, not just when we're under their household, but we should be children who are obedient. Um, it's the first command with a promise in the Bible. It says as long as you, if you obey, you'll have long life and things will go well with you. This doesn't just mean as parents, though, that we can act and treat our kids any way we want. We can just do whatever we want because they're kids. They just have to obey. We should also treat our kids with, uh, as Christ would treat us and would treat them. Uh, the next verse, 21. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Also, I think, pretty clear. As parents who follow God, our desire should be to guide and direct our children, to lead them toward Jesus, not to exasperate them, not to push them, not to create rules and boundaries and all of these things just to frustrate them. But everything should be, do, be done to guide and direct them. Now, uh, I've learned this as parents. Sometimes you want your kid to obey, not because it gets them closer to Jesus or because it's safe for them, but because you just want them to. And it can sometimes be operating out of a place just of authority, just because you want to see them listen, just because you want to humble them. And the goal should always be to guide and direct them into the person God wants them to be and to Jesus, constantly pointing their eyes toward Jesus through everything that we do. Again, nowhere in Scripture does it give someone dictator authority over another person. 
That's not what it does. It only instructs us on how to respond to systems currently in place, which is again what verse 22 is doing. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. This verse isn't condoning slavery. It's not saying like, hey, slavery is this great thing. Everybody should do it. And when you do it, this is what it should look like. It's not at all what it's saying. What it is, though, is it's instructing slaves on how to respond in a system that already existed. Uh, there's a lot that the Bible shakes up. Uh, and if you actually research some of the early church people, um, there's actually a conflict that occurs between a slave and his master, and Paul is trying to instruct the master on how not to treat them like their property, and, and it's a whole interesting thing. So this isn't saying slavery is a good thing, positive thing, and this is what it should look like. It's saying this is already in existence, so in the different roles and, and, and places that we have in life, this is how we should respond. Those who came to know Christ as slaves should obey their earthly masters in everything they do with integrity, not because their masters have been great people or you know doesn't matter who their master was. Uh, that doesn't come into the conversation here. It should happen because they fear the Lord. They should respond out of a fear for God, not their master. We're all to conduct ourselves with integrity. Verse 23 says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Now, I've seen this verse pulled out and used for many things. Um, the verse is actually meant for slaves, but it applies to every one of us. It's definitely one of those verses that applies outside of its initial context. No matter what we're doing or if our boss is watching or our supervisor is watching, we should work in a way which shows that we don't work for the applause of man or for the applause of our boss or for supervisor or people, but we, we work for the approval of God, because we work for him. We do everything as if he is our direct supervisor boss, as if he is actually watching, because he is. He's with us. He's in us, and everything that we do should reflect that. Verse 24, remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. This would have been a very encouraging thought for somebody caught up in the system of slavery. Uh, we don't really have as great a reference. We hear a lot about slavery. Um, it's something that existed in our country um, until not that long ago. Uh, so it is something that we know about, but that none of us have probably experienced in our lifetime. But to put yourself in a place of somebody who will never own anything, as a matter of fact, is being most of the time treated like they are being owned, that they're all property themselves, to get this idea that they have an inheritance in Christ. As a slave, you wouldn't have an inheritance. You wouldn't have anything to hand off to your offspring. You wouldn't receive anything from your parents when they died. But to know that you have an inheritance that is eternal, that exists outside of this world's broken and messed up systems, and that for all of eternity, you will be known as the son or the daughter of God. You will be co-heir with Christ I think it's awesome, not just for slaves, but for all of us. Verse 25, but if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. I always found it frustrating when someone who uh, didn't conduct themselves in a Christian way, but professed to be a Christian, was fired or reprimanded or something, I think of one situation in particular, and they were, they'd cry, persecution because of their faith, and it's like their boss is like, hold on, wait, you're a Christian? They didn't even know. 
and they think it's because of their faith that they're being persecuted. It's like, no, you're just lazy, and you don't do your job the way you're supposed to, and you thought you could just do whatever you wanted. Uh, I think sometimes we can claim persecution because of our faith far too quickly, and we just need to accept that sometimes it's because we didn't do the job right. We didn't do things the way we were supposed to, and God's making it very clear, like, listen, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want and treat your boss terrible because, well, they don't know Jesus, so I don't have to treat them with love and respect, and I don't have to treat them with humility and kindness. Um, that's not the way it works. We do. We should operate as if we're working for God, and if we suffer consequences of our bad decisions, God doesn't play favorites. So, yeah, you make mistakes, you do the wrong thing, you're probably going to suffer the consequences of that wrong thing. As most of you know, uh, the verses and chapters in the Bible, they were added much later than the books were originally written. So again, it wasn't like Paul sat down writing his letter to the church in Colossae and said, okay, chapter 1, verse 1. That's not the way it worked. He wrote a letter, and then later somebody went back through and said, okay, this is chapter 1, chapter 2 starts here, and I don't know what they were thinking when they were doing Colossians, but uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 obviously goes in chapter 3. It doesn't belong as its own chapter. So if you have a Bible that breaks things up, it almost always will put uh, chapter 4, verse 1 up in the paragraph uh, previously, and then it looks like chapter 4 kind of starts in verse 2. So I don't know what they were thinking, but we are going to cover verse 1, and then uh, we're going to close. So chapter 4, verse 1 says, Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Again, this is not condoning slavery. This isn't, this isn't the conversation Paul's having here. Paul's saying, based on the systems that, which currently exist, this is how you should act. If you know history, if you study a little even of just American history, after slavery was abolished in our country, there were slaves who, though they were now free based on the governmental system, they decided to stay with their masters and work for them as free people, not as slaves any longer. Why would they do that? Because their masters treated them justly and fairly, most likely, even before they were free. This is how Paul is encouraging the masters of that time to conduct themselves. Just because slavery existed doesn't mean that any one person should have been treated as less than another person. And that's one of the things Paul is saying here. Be just and fair to your slaves. Now, this might seem like, yeah, well, duh, but not in that time. This, this was controversial, this idea, that you would treat, in their minds, their property justly and fairly. There was no basis for that. There was no moral obligation to do that. And so it was, this would have been controversial for them. So Paul is telling them, let's not, he, he, obviously God wasn't trying to topple this system right now. That, that's not the point Paul is trying to get to here at the end of Colossians. But he's saying, masters, if you're going to have slaves, then treat them with dignity and respect. Treat them fairly and justly. They are, and th- this is giving them personality and making them people. And that's one of the things we know the Bible to be is it treats all people without prejudice and without uh, social classes and all the other things. It breaks those down constantly. And so this is telling a, a, a slave owner, master, you aren't better than them. Your obligation to them is to treat them justly and fairly. Every individual deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, justly and fairly, even in the dysfunctional systems of that time and our time. There are still systems today that give us the opportunity to treat people without respect, without uh, love, without humility. 
Um, trust me, I worked retail in New Jersey. Um, there are definitely systems which exist that give people an open door to treat people like they are garbage. Uh, but even beyond that, there are certainly systems in our country and all over the world that exist. It's our job to live differently because we live as new creations. So what does all this mean for us? It means regardless of our position in life, regardless of what hats you wear or what roles you have, whether you're husband, wife, child, uh, father, uh, all of these different things, co-worker, uh, employee, business owner, whatever those roles are, we are to conduct ourselves as Christ would in that situation because we are uh, to be operating out of the new life that we have in Christ. Again, this is not take the old tools that you had before Jesus and just put a Christian sticker on them and then use them in your new life. That's not what Jesus is telling us. All the things, the ways that you learn to operate, they all die. We become this new creation and God teaches us how to do everything new because he's now the center of our universe and those old tools just don't work anymore. And everything takes on a different uh, look. Everything becomes new as we learn to operate. I mean, think about what would it look like to operate without conditions in your marriage with your children? What would it look like to love them, to respect them without any thought of reciprocation? How would that change the way that you act? To love, respect, and obey without any expectation of the actions of others, without ever being able to use somebody else's actions as an excuse for why we acted a certain way. That is how Paul is encouraging the Colossian church and us to act. Now, next week, we're going to get into chapter 4. I make no promises as to how far we'll get, but uh, I encourage you to be reading chapter 4 every day this week um, in preparation for that. Again, I really believe it's going to uh, help uh, the Scripture to take on a whole new light when we're really uh, meditating on it throughout the week, uh, and then we'll jump into it next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your words of uh, in Colossians 3. Lord, it's definitely a journey for us, and I felt like there was so much there, and um, there were definitely things you had for us, as I've heard testimony after testimony of the things that we've learned in Colossians 3 that you've pulled out in people's lives and how it applied to their situation so uniquely and, and powerfully, Lord. What, what an amazing thing your word is, that thousands of years after it is written, it can affect our immediate circumstances so profoundly. Holy Spirit, we are desperately dependent on you. We cannot do this in our own strength, with our own patience, with our own humility, with our own goodness, with our own kindness. We fail miserably when we try that. So Lord, I pray as as we think about what it looks like to operate without condition, as we think about and pray about and meditate on what it would look like to live without condition, to operate from your power, your strength, your toolbox, and not our own, Lord, would you make it very clear how it is we are to live how it is we are to walk in the Spirit. Would we become people who lead a different life, who show a different example, who through the way that we love our spouse, our kids, and our coworkers, it would communicate the love of God even before we speak words. Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do, what you are doing in us, and what you're accomplishing through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great fourth and enjoy your day.